Before we get started, what are you doing this Saturday afternoon? I have something really great to invite you to. Come to the Italian Center in Stanford this Saturday, October 28th from 4 to 7 p.m. Joe Heschmeyer from Catholic Answers is coming to give a talk on the Eucharist, and we're going to have food, drinks, fun, and fellowship. And you're invited to join us for this Oktoberfest. So grab a ticket, bring your friends, bring your family, bring your kids, bring your neighbor, bring your coworker, bring everybody. This Saturday, October 28th. For tickets, go to veritascatholic.com and click on the events tab. All right, today on Let Me Be Frank, His Excellency is joined by Joseph Pierce, the very excellent expert on literature and the faith, the founder of the website jpierce.co. They're going to have a great, great conversation about um, literature and narratives and what that can do for our faith. So stay here at 1350 AM or 103.9 FM or on the Veritas app on your phone. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or VeritasCatholic.com. And if you enjoy Let Me Be Frank, you can help us out by going to your favorite podcast platform and giving us a five-star rating. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations of Faith. Foundations of Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, nice to see you, as always, my friend. Yeah. Yes, Excellency. Yep. It's always great to catch up with you and see you. Yeah, and we have a great guest today. This is going to be a treat. Yeah. Very much a treat. Tell us. Tell us who it is. Yes. Okay. Coming to the show, Joseph Pierce. And um, once he begins talking, you may or may not be able to tell, but Joseph grew up in England. <laughs> and uh, he is really a foremost expert on English literature. He's written many books, including The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, and many others. Last summer, I read a, uh, a book that uh, Joseph wrote. Uh, it was a biography of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which was just fantastic. So and he's written uh, a very helpful book for folks who are less literate, like me, uh, called 12 Great Books, mm-hmm. and uh, so many more. Joseph is a regular fixture on EWTN, Ave Maria, here on Veritas, and as a lecturer at major colleges and universities in the U.S., Canada, Britain, Europe, Africa, and South America. I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop there and simply say, Joseph Pierce, thank you for coming, and welcome to Let Me Be Frank. It's an honor to be on. Yeah, I'm delighted that you are that that you that you're on the podcast because you bring a wealth of experience and perspective that, quite frankly, many of our guests do, have not had to date. So this is a great venue to to kind of mine together. But for Joseph, like I I, I ask all my guests, give us a a sense of your life journey, particularly your faith journey, and how you got to be where you are today. 
So yes, uh, so this will be a, the, the short sort of two-minute version of, of a, a book I wrote uh, that, that was called Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. So as that subtitle would indicate that when, as a young man, in fact as a teenager at the age of 15 years old, I got involved with white supremacist politics back in my homeland of England. Uh, and rose through the ranks of of, of the uh, of the movement um, and edited a magazine that led to my being sent to prison twice for for hate crimes. Um, so I was I was very anti-Catholic. I was involved with the anti-Catholic terrorist organisations in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. I was a member of the Orange Order, which is an anti-Catholic secret society. So I was very anti-Catholic. I was a racist. I was a very long way from from Christ and His Church, and it was obviously to quite get. To God be the glory. So all this is under grace. It's it's, it's all gift. But um, uh, under grace, I owe my conversion more than anyone, uh, more than anything, to to being introduced to the works of G.K. Chesterton. And, and, and the key thing about being introduced to Chesterton, who is really sort of leading me to, to Thomas Aquinas, was that I, I was always raised to think you had to choose between being religious or being rational. You couldn't be both. So you're going to be, be religious by abandoning reason. Or you could be rational by abandoning religion. And of course, Chesterton showed me that Peter's at ratio, that faith and re- reason were actually indissolubly married. And once I realized that, that reason led to a, to a belief in the existence of God, uh, you know, I was on that journey. And I say, I have Chesterton to thank uh, under grace for my journey to uh, eventually becoming a Catholic. And I was received into the church in 1989 when I was 28 years old. So from your perspective, to see the odyssey that you have walked is astounding that grace can move you in such a way, right? You're you're the living example that God is alive and his grace is powerful, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, you actually see. One, one thing I hope is that because I was so far away from Christ and his church and, and it's indeed so antagonistic mm-hmm. to the church that I'm hoping that my journey will show that nobody uh, is so far from the grace of God that they, they can't find their way to him. And, uh, you know, we all have friends, or, I mean, perhaps ourselves, but we certainly all have friends and people we know that, are, that have wandered uh, far away from from. Christ and his church, but I, I hope my story will be an encouragement that no, that no one's beyond the reach of his grace. Of course, absolutely. I wonder those who you who were your colleagues in, in your pre-conversion life, when they look at you now, I wonder what they think. If if there could that be me one day? I, I just wonder to myself. Huh? Yeah, there's there's the whole spectrum actually, from those who consider me to be a traitor to the to to the cause of white supremacism, uh, 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 to those who have also converted and, and have contacted me, you know, maybe thanking me for for, for uh, my own example on that, or maybe they made their own way there independently and they just uh-huh. discovered that I also was a Catholic and just wanted to touch base with me. So others have also gone through the journey. That's fascinating. Wow. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's to your point. No one's, the love of God finds no bounds, right? There are, there is no place we could hide that God will not be present to us. That's amazing. Wow. It's amazing. So your love is for literature, correct? Yes, I mean, I, I, I've loved literature all of my life. My father was a, a very keen on, on, on literature in general, Shakespeare in particular. He could quote swathes of Shakespeare um, from, from memory. So I sort of grew up with, uh, with the best of English literature from my father's knee, so to speak. 
But of course, once I became a Catholic, I realized that so many of these writers uh, were uh, leading us to, to Christ and his church through the power of beauty and through the power of narrative. And I think that's, you know, Jesus Christ himself, of course, teaches us some of the most powerful lessons through the telling of fictional narratives. I mean, his parables are stories that convey a great deal of truth, although they're not historical. So I think that's the power of literature to bring people to, to Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting. Well, of course, we've spoken, Steve and I've spoken a great deal about the power of beauty and how beauty is an evangelizing power that unfortunately in contemporary world has not been really utilized or appreciated much, right? The fact that you're highlighting it in your entire career has highlighted this is a great gift because I think it opens a door that most people will find fascinating, right? Once they enter into it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think I think that it, it, the beauty is always uh, a beacon of God's presence, and and uh, you know that when uh, the the great Greek philosophers talked about the the good, the true, and the beautiful, and these were triune, and I really believe that when Jesus Christ said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life," He was saying, "I am the good, the true, and the beautiful." You know, so we, we it's it's the love, charity that that's the good uh, reason or logos right that, that that that's the true but but the the lie in things is 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 beauty both the life and the thing beheld but we have to have life in ourselves right. to actually see the beauty in other things so so uh, in this day and age where you know relativism has confused what's meant by love has confused what's meant by reason power our beauty if anything is more powerful than ever as an evangelizing weapon yeah no i absolutely agree you have converted me. I absolutely agree. <laughs> so now I have to, you used the phrase rational love. So to explain to our listeners, what do you mean by that phrase, rational love? Well, it's the, the Christian understanding of love is, is absolutely uh, indissolubly uh, wedded to, to, to the idea of reason. To, to, to a Christian understanding of love is, is to freely choose to lay down our lives for the beloved, even if the beloved is our enemy. Now, so, so what for the, for the world, love is an emotion, it's a feeling, and therefore irrational. But for the Christian, it's this free choice of ourselves to sacrifice ourselves for another. Now, you know, we're obviously the feelings have got to change. The feelings we have towards our spouse or our children or our parents or our friends or our enemies are going to vary greatly. But it's, that's ultimately accidental and irrelevant. The, the, what, what's, what's necessary is the rational choice to sacrifice ourselves for another. That's why love in a Christian understanding of the words is always rational. And that was your journey in life, to understand that in your own life, right? Yes, in, indeed, exactly. To understand that the, 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 the connection between faith and reason, but also between love and reason. Yeah, see, Joseph, we've, we've been talking a lot about the need for apologetics in the church and helping people to understand. Like, I think the average Catholic wrestles with that very question about the relationship between reason and faith or science and reason or however you want it to characterize the dichotomy. And, and they fall into the trap of thinking, well, one at best exists that is religion and faith because the other hasn't caught up yet to answer every question that we have right which is not true as exactly as you said so so well it's not true so um so how can the study of literature help to illustrate that then right because you have thousands of years of writing correct but it's so explain why literature is such an important venue then for this question 
Well, first of all, you know, we, as, you, you're quite correct, Your Excellency. We have three thousand years of heritage here. Mm-hmm. Um, One thousand years, uh, be, you know, before the coming of Christ, where writers such as Homer and Sophocles and Virgil were grappling with these moral issues and basically moving in the right direction. Uh, and then since then, of course, the age of Christendom for 2,000 years, we've had these wonderful works of, of Christian literature. And what I say about literature is it holds up a mystical mirror to us. You know, a physical mirror can only show us our physical surface, right? It's, it's, it's sort of like a metaphor for philosophical materialism. It can only show us physical matter. It can't show us anything else. Whereas literature is like a mystical mirror that we can look into it and see not merely our physical selves, but our metaphysical selves. So in, including, you know, our memory, our desire, our loves, our hates, um, our sort of fullness of who we are as human persons. And then beyond that, it can, it can also show us not just who we are as human persons, but who we should be, in other words, more like Christ, and who we shouldn't be, right? Um, basically swallowed up by by pride, by 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 um, selfishness. So literally has this power to show us who we are and who we should be and who we shouldn't be. And in that sense, it's a very powerful way of coming to understand ourselves and our neighbor. Yeah, that's fascinating. So of pre-Christian literature, like the authors, some of the authors, and there are others as well. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I think probably my, uh, that's, that's a very good question, actually, your excellency. Uh, I, I love Homer, and, and I, but I also love Sophocles. And, and um, you know, just, just, just with Homer, let's just say that, you know, the Iliad is, uh, teaches us a lesson that um, the pride precedes the fall. Right at the beginning of, of that epic, we're told by, by Homer that um, sing of the pride so sing of the the anger of Achilles and its destructiveness and the will of Zeus, which is accomplished. Um, so obviously, the, the Homer, living 800 years before Christ, did not have the revelation of the true God. But what he did understand is that pride leads to anger. Anger is, is destructive of both our friends, our enemies and ourselves. And that somehow providence is played out in this. I mean, that's a very powerful lesson for us to learn. So, yeah, I, I think that, that, that what, what C.S. Lewis said about, um, about the, 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 the Greeks, he says that they are like um, the, the virgins awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. And he talks about neo-pagans uh, as divorcees who have walked away from the marriage. So I, I think it's very important for us to see the difference between the virgin muse of, say, Homer and Sophocles, the seeking the truth and waiting for the bridegroom, and the sort of the, the, the modern neo-pagan who have turned their back on Christ and are basically moving right. forward in the position in, in, a, right. in sort of skepticism and cynicism. That's a tremendous image. I had never really thought of it in those terms, but that makes perfect sense because Homer and Virgil and all the rest, they 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 did the best. I'm, I'm putting this in a pedestrian way, but they did the best they could with the lights they had to reach the truth as as best they could. Meanwhile, we would have the fullness of the truth and you walk away from it and then it's your fault. I mean, you are the one who was actively denying what, what ultimately is the culture and the accumulated insight of, of thousands of years. It's, it's a fascinating way of looking at it. You know, when I was in high school, I, I was the last in my high school to have only Greek four years. So I remember the Odyssey. We had to prepare 5,000 lines of Greek. And the chair of the classics department of Princeton came for a two-hour public session that was the scariest two hours of my entire life. 
And we were allowed no dictionary, just the lines. Gosh, I thought to myself, oh my gosh. But why do I say all this? It's because my Greek teacher, uh, Father Kelly, God rest his soul, Jesuit, he said, you know, to consider that the great tales, these great epics, were basically oral tradition for hundreds of years. You know, we marvel as, you know, contemporary humanity. We're all sophisticated. He said, who, who do you know would be able to memorize that and sing it and then pass it on to their children and children? And we think we're all sophisticated, right? It's fascinating when you look at the uh, literature, even in that context, it's amazing. In some ways, we've progressed. In some ways, we have gone backwards in some ways as a culture. Would you agree with that? Or am I being too pessimistic here? <laughs> no, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. In fact, I keep, I keep coming back to C.S. Lewis. Uh, so first of all, C.S. Lewis, I think getting this idea largely from Chesterton, and particularly Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, talked about chronological snobbery. In other words, this, this, this sort of looking down our supercilious noses at the past on the presumption that the, the, the modern and the new is always superior to the old. Uh, and that's basically, it's an arrogance which is similar to racism because it's assuming that someone's inferior to you merely because they, 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 they're they different, in this case, mm -hmm. because they're in mm -hmm. the past. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you said, you excellently said, so again, to go back to, um, to, to Lewis again, in one of his books, The Pilgrim's Regress, he has this character, uh, allegorical character, of father history, representing history itself, or knowledge of history. And he says that, you know, in the past, that the God's people, the Jews, were the only people who knew how to read. Uh, everyone else had forgotten how to read. All the Gentiles had forgotten how to read, as in, as in read the law, you know, uh, to, uh, to understand the covenant, to have this relationship with God. The Gentiles had lost that. But he said that, that, that God did not desert the Gentiles because they were now illiterate uh, theologically. He said instead he sent them pictures because they couldn't read. He sent them pictures. Mm -hmm. So this idea of you know, the epics of Homer being a way by which, like stained glass windows, those who can't read are led, led towards the bride, led towards the coming of Christ. Right. So now Chesterton obviously has had a huge impact on your life. So for the sake of our listeners who say, well, who is this? Like, who is this man? Like, what background can you give? Because maybe someone's listening who may have be ripe for the moment of impact of grace just as you had in your life so what can you tell us about him well so gk chesterton was a, a writer who was uh active uh, from the 1900 when he was first published until 1936 when he died uh, and during that period of time he was a man of letters but in other words he didn't restrict himself to one particular type of, of literature so he was a great essayist short story writer poet novelist. Uh, he wrote biographies of St. Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas and, and others. But he had he had this great use of, of, of paradox. Uh, you know, and of course he's following Christ here. You know, so so the, the, the what the greatest paradox ever perhaps is the first shall be last and the last shall be first, which is the very secret of of, of, of love, right? That to, to love, you have to put yourself last in order to be first in the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. So this idea of, of giving yourself to another. But, you know, Chesterton sort of was, was very much a, a, a one who, who used paradox, the, the, the apparent contradiction that points to a deeper truth. And, and it was that understanding of, of, of uh, he made me sort of think, stand on my head, see things the other way around through this art of paradox. But the key thing about him was that he's a convert to the faith himself. 
Um, uh, and, and so he wrote many books um, showing how the Catholic Church was rational and reasonable. Perhaps most importantly, his book Orthodoxy, published in 1908, and his book The Everlasting Man, published in 1926, I think. Um, so, so, so. He led me to an understanding that faith was rational, and uh, he led me to Thomas Aquinas, because that's really, uh, Thomas uh, Chesterton had this Thomistic understanding of reality, mm-hmm. and he had a very, very good way of explaining it in an easier language than, so shall we say, heavy philosophy. So he allows us to get into these deepest truths of the Catholic faith uh, within a very accessible and indeed entertaining way. He's a very entertaining writer, full of good humor, as good as, as well as good reason. Yeah, I was going to mention that. There are some great lines, Chesterton. He had great wit about him, right? In a sense, the way you're describing it, if St. Thomas is the theologian, Chesterton was the catechist. He made the theology accessible to people. Yes, and he did it. He quite right. I, I talk about Chesterton in terms of humor and humility. Uh, he he had he had both in abundance and wit and wisdom. He had both of those in mm-hmm. abundance, and he used his wit to convey wisdom, and and that's a very that's a very um, uh, captivating way of doing it because if if wisdom can be presented to us in a way which is making us smile or laugh or entertaining us, then we want more of it. You're going to come back for more. But right? if you mm-hmm. present wisdom in a really abstract, dry, arid fashion, you know mm-hmm. you can only take so much at one time. If indeed you have an appetite for much of it at all. Yeah, that was true. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, we're going to have here in the diocese in April a presentation from a professor in Notre Dame who specializes in social media and communication. And one of the um, one of the theories that's circulating in many different areas, including with this gentleman, is that social media has changed the way we communicate meaning. Instead of having a narrative that's written, that's very linear, now it's much more a question of, of storytelling, right? An image, which you alluded to. So you mentioned narrative before and the power of narrative. So could you explain that a bit more? Is this the age where we should be telling the stories of faith to each other as a way to evangelize? Absolutely. It, it's crucial that we do so. And, and we know this from, from, from Christ himself. How, how does God reveal his deepest mysteries and deepest truths to us? He, did, he does it through narrative. First of all, the narrative, which is history itself. I say that history is his story. Uh, and his entering into the story through the incarnation has been called mm-hmm. in the Hollywood movie, the greatest story ever told. And that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest story ever told. It's the, as Tolkien and Lewis said, the true myths, the, the true story, where the power of story becomes truth and fact. Um, but within that story, when Christ becomes incarnate, he tells us his most of his valuable, most valuable lessons through the telling of stories. The parable of the prodigal son, for instance, mm-hmm. these fictional narratives that convey great truths uh, about, about realities. This is the way that, that Christ himself reveals the greatest truths to us. It's much more accessible to us and digestible for us if, it's, if, if truth is presented to us as a narrative rather than as an abstract um, uh, proposition. Mm-hmm. Which which is uh, which would be a surprise to some people who consider that you pass on the faith by studying the catechism, which I'm not debating 
I think you need to study the catechism. That's not the point. But the point is, it's the stories that make it actually enfleshed, right? It's the narratives that make it enfleshed in a person's life and relatable, right? Or applicable. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, before we go to break, you you kept mentioning Tolkien. You mentioned now Tolkien. I love Tolkien. I have to say, everybody knows that. Anybody who knows me and any even tangentially knows, I think Tolkien is just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now, having said that, do you agree? Father, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my heart, my heart leapt when I heard you speaking so 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 uh, enthusiastically about J.R.R. Tolkien. To me, he's a uh, one of the great and uh, great geniuses of uh, uh, of all of all time uh, as a storyteller, but also as a Catholic, he was, he was a profoundly uh, knowledgeable Catholic about his faith and had a way of conveying that through the power of story, which has captivated millions and brought millions closer to Christ. Mm-hmm. And I must confess, for those who like for the younger generation who may not initially read his books, some of the of the films that have been created are not completely uh, faithful to what he wrote, but nonetheless gives a venue into what I think is just an astounding Christian imagination, right? Yeah. Tolkien said that, um, and I'm quoting him word for word here, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Um, And that's something we have to know and be aware of as we approach his stories. Yeah. Oh, no, and you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see that. I mean, in many ways... In I fact, I, 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 mentioned, I mentioned this before, but when I was young, when I was introduced to Tolkien in high school again by the Jesuits, and I read the trilogy every summer until I went to seminary. Then in seminary, everything else was going on. There were so many other things to do. But now periodically, I, 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 because of so many things, so, such busyness, I will peak 20 minutes worth of one of the films that was created just to kind of get like the the adrenaline going <laughs> and c.s lewis c.s lewis again well tolkien and lewis are great friends um lewis actually has tolkien to, to thank tolkien and chesterton were major influences upon lewis's conversion to christianity and if it ha- hadn't been for the influence of those two men it's possible that lewis may not have converted uh to Christianity. And if he hadn't done, of course, we wouldn't have these wonderful works uh, that Lewis mm-hmm. has also given us. Another great mind of the 20th century who's led many, many people to Christ. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Screw tape letters. I still, re- I, gosh, it was like yesterday I read them for the first time. Yeah. I think we have a break and then we'll be back. Yes, Steve? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Screw tape letters is so convicting to mm-hmm. read. Um, so I can't wait to hear the, the next part of this conversation. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with Joseph Pierce, an expert on literature and the faith and the founder of the website, jpierce.co. And we will be right back after the break. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. 
Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, His Excellency is speaking with Joseph Pierce, and I'll just turn it right over to... Yeah, you know, Joseph, you had mentioned when we were on break about, you know, the 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 way we could unlock this as a, as a way of evangelizing people and just introducing them to the power of the seventh gift of the Holy Spirit, which is wonder and awe when you stand before the majesty, the greatness, the incomprehensibility of God, and yet it doesn't consume you. It just embraces you. It caresses you. Then you feel you belong in the universe. You know that there's that there's a God who's moving forward. That's not just a cognitive reality. It's not. It's more than that. And literature and art and music um, just profoundly does that. I think it we're long overdue to do that. It's interesting. Uh, just this morning, in fact, we we're planning. We we have this great initiative called the One, and and it's giving people. Uh, opportunities to encounter Christ in truth, beauty, and goodness, and what all of that can open up with. And we're we're planning book clubs and just be able to have like a person like yourself and other people who are expert, be able to perhaps make four or five videos that introduce the thought of C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or whoever it may be, right? Chesterton. And then have a reading list and have trained facilitators just open it up to people and let them explore and just let them go with it. You know, because I think I think that's the match for the hay. That's the match that's going to in different lives. Just let it go. Is that make sense? Is that crazy? Is that <laughs> no? It's absolutely what's necessary. Is that we have all this wealth of uh, literary and artistic power at our disposal. You know that as, as Hilaire Belloc said, yeah, the past is ours. You know, that we, we and, and you know, as, as Chesterton said, that the, the Catholic Church is the one continuous institution that's been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years. We have this wealth at our disposal and we should be employing it. And certainly the power of, of, of beauty, the power of narrative. Um, I, I, I sometimes I, you know, I talk about the five metaphysical senses. So we, obviously we know what our five physical senses mm-hmm. are. But for me, the five metaphysical senses um, are, 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 they, they, um, they go in order. So it begins with humility, uh, and then humility gives us a sense of gratitude. Gratitude opens the eyes in wonder, and it's only when our eyes are open in wonder that we move to contemplation. And it's only when we move to contemplation that we experience what Thomas Aquinas calls that uh, dilatatio, dilation, 
the opening of the mind and soul into the fullness of reality. So we need to uh, be, um, uh, should we say, um, igniting this sense of wonder uh, in order to actually see the goodness, truth, and beauty of the cosmos. If we if, if we don't do that, then we then we, we're prone to uh, believe that uh, the the darkness prevails, and it absolutely doesn't. Right. Because as right. Samwise Gamgee says in one of the darkest moments of the Lord of the Rings, uh, above all shadows rides the sun. But you can only say only say and see that above all shadows rise the sun if you look upwards, you know, and, and you, you only look upwards if you've got this sense of wonder. Mm. The way you describe the five metaphysical senses, it would also seem to me that if you want to develop a true life of prayer, you need those senses. You need to go through that journey, right? Yes. Absolutely. Without it, I mean, literally, the pride, you know, the sort of technical definition of pride is the absence of humility. And if you don't have humility, if you have pride, you will not have a sense of gratitude. If you don't have a sense of gratitude, instead of having your eyes open in wonder, they'll be shut in cynicism. And if your eyes are shut in cynicism, there is no contemplation. And there's no contemplation, there's no dilation. But on the contrary, and this is where Tolkien's so powerful again, what happens is we golemize ourselves. We shrivel and shrink into the into our own ego. Mm-hmm. The irony and the paradox is the bigger we think we are, actually the, the more shriveled and shrunken mm-hmm. we're becoming. What an interesting idea that what Gollum could represent. Isn't that fascinating? But that's a lecture in itself, right? That's yeah, just a lecture in itself. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that that's what Tolkien shows us. In the Lord of the Rings, the ring, uh, I could explain this, but we probably don't have time. The ring is really a symbol and is synonymous with sin itself. So the, wear, the wearing of the ring is the act of sin. Uh, keeping the ring on is, is being in sin. But of course, if we don't wear the ring, we bear the ring. If we're ring bearers, instead of sit, sit, ring wearers, we are be uh, bearing the burden of sin without sinning. And that, that, in other words, we're carrying the cross. So the ring bearer's a cross bearer. And if we refuse that, if we, if instead we, we, our sin is, is, is the precious, right, then we do golemize ourselves. We shrink and shrivel. And I think that the Tolkien has shown us in the clouds of Gollum, uh, looking at ourselves in the mirror, if we are, are going to insist on living in pride and not in the humility, this is what we really look like. You know, my nephew um, gave to me two Christmases ago uh, a replica um, of the One Ring, and he also gave me a replica of Aragon's ring. And because you know, I, I love the, the the trilogy. I love Tolkien, and and uh, from what I understand, they were very expensive. I mean, they're perfect um, replicas. And he said to me, "So you're going to try them on?" So I did put Aragon's ring on, but to this day, I will not put that ring on. I will not do it. And now you gave me the re- like the words, why instinctively, I cannot put that ring on. And now you just explained it. Wow, you're like my psychoanalyst. This is great, Joseph. It's tremendous. <laughs> okay, so you wrote a book, um, 12 great books. Now, of those 12 books, 
which is the greatest of the great in your estimate? Is that an unfair question? It's an unfair question, right? <laughs> it's a difficult question, you know, because for instance, what I say about my favorite Shakespeare plays, uh, sort of somewhat jokingly, but nonetheless truthfully, is that I can't make up my mind about which is my favorite Shakespeare play uh, between Hamlet and uh, and King Lear. So I say that I Hamlet's my favorite play on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and uh, <laughs> King Lear the weekends on the Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you know, it is obviously difficult to sort of pin Okay, so give us give us two or three. Give us two or three of those twelves. Like if you were to say to me, okay, Bishop, if you have only time to read three of those twelve, I would recommend you look at these three. What 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 would you suggest? Okay, uh, I would probably I would probably say I'm a Shakespeare lover. I would probably say King Lear and Hamlet. Why why choose? <laughs> and right. Bride's Head Revisited because uh, to me, Bride's Head Revisited is the greatest novel of the 20th century. I would add, by the way, that The Lord of the Rings is not um, is not a novel; it's an epic. The Lord of the Rings yep. has more in common with the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, yep. and Dante's Divine Comedy and Beowulf than it has with any novel. But The Bride's Head Revisited to me is 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 a is a, the best novel of the 20th century and profoundly Catholic. Now, just to give a taste you know, part one of, of Brideshead visited the end symbolically on Good Friday with the removal of the best sacrament from the tabernacle uh, and it ends uh, with symbolically on Easter Sunday with the return of the best sacrament to the tabernacle so you have this uh, liturgical symbolism in the background to the novel and indeed Brideshead who's the Brideshead the bridegroom. So, so evening wars got all of this uh, christological uh, and liturgical symbolism going on in that wonderful novel, and I would certainly recommend that to anybody. Really, one of the twelve is the Christmas car- is a Christmas Carol, correct? Yes. Yeah, which is a favorite. Obviously, it's been it's been uh, put into film many many different ways. Why did that make the list of the twelve? Well, you know, I, it, obviously, normally you'd think, well, you know, some of the some of the longer works by Dickens, Great uh, Expectations, A Tale of Two Cities, you know, these longer works, David Copperfield, you think, surely these have more gravitas, right? Surely, by comparison, uh, Christmas Story is more levitas than gravitas. But the way that, the reason I, I, I chose um, uh, A Christmas Carol, not, first of all, there's nothing wrong with levitas, but it, it's, it's, it's very much like a parable. It has the same sort of power as, as the parables of Christ. That's why, you know, that the very character of Ebenezer Scrooge, you only have to say the name and people have this image. See, he has the same sort of power as the prodigal son. Yeah, the prodigal son's a fictional character. Ebenezer Scrooge is a fictional character. But if you say the prodigal son, we all, you know, have this image, very powerful image that applies to ourselves. Um, you know, we've all, in some sense, wandered away and have needed to come back. Um, and with Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, we all have this tendency to put ourselves first and and, and and not to give ourselves to others to sort of this is mine right mm-hmm. um and so i think that the whole story and of course as a conversion story i can't think of a better one quite frankly right. than the conversion right. of scrooge you know right 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 well absolutely so that's that re- reference you 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 mentioned at the very beginning of our time together that that mirror into your inner self Right. It's very much we could all see ourselves at one time or another slipping into the Ebenezer Scrooge. Right. That's fascinating. A picture of Dorian Gray. Now, why would that be on the 12, one of the 12? What do you 
Well, again, you know, the, I, I read a biography of, of Oscar Wilde uh, called The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde. So he, I, I, I'm fascinated with him. Of course, he was a, a sinner, but he also had a lifelong love affair with the Catholic Church. Uh, he was an unfaithful lover. Um, but when he was received into the church on his deathbed, that was the consummation of a lifelong love affair um, for which we, 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 we should be uh, thankful. But the point is, most of his work, Almost all of his work is profoundly Catholic in its morality. Mm-hmm. Even when he Wilde himself was living an immoral life, and he, his art still reflected this Catholic moral vision. And nowhere, nowhere more than in the, the picture Dorian Gray, where basically, uh, for those who don't know the story, Dorian Gray makes a pact with the devil uh, at the beginning of the work, where the, the portrait of him will grow old and will reflect uh, his sinfulness. Whereas Dorian Gray, irrespective of what he does, will continue to look beautiful. Um, so what we see with this 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 picture of Dorian Gray, it's, it's a mirror of his soul. It's a mirror of his conscience. And 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 I don't know if I want, I want to necessarily give away the end of the story. I don't want to be a spoiler. But but what we see in, in the picture of Dorian Gray is really what great literature is, right? Great literature is a mirror that shows us ourselves. Tolkien says the stories hold up a mirror to man. They show us ourselves. And as I said earlier. It's a mystical mirror, right? right. It shows not right. just the surface, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the depth. And that's what the picture of Dorian Gray does. It shows how, doesn't matter how beautiful Dorian Gray looks, in reality, he's as ugly as the picture. Right, right. Um, was Oscar Wilde, was he a Catholic? I don't remember. He, yeah, he had, basically, he had a lifelong love affair with the church. He was raised as a Protestant. Oh, he, he was a Christian. Became, okay. Yeah, he almost became a, almost became a Catholic as an undergraduate. Um, uh, he loved John Henry Newman and Cardinal Manning and, and Pope Pius IX. But uh, because of his uh, his weakness uh, and his sinful lifestyle, didn't actually consummate that love affair with the Church until his death. He but he was Christian. Uh, I meant to. I should have asked the question: Was he Christian? He was Christian. Yeah, mm-hmm. At his worst, he tried to escape from his own Christianity, but never really succeeded. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, because it's part of the genes. In the end, right? In some way, shape, or form, it's it's part of the religious imagination we're formed with. And when people leave the church, I mean, they leave active worship, but I'm not sure you ever really do get it out of your system. And there's always hope, like you said, that God's love will call you back. Uh, Augustine made your list too, I suppose, right? In his confessions. He did. Um, Augustine's confessions, I mean, if you had to th- name sort of five or six classics of all time, I don't really see how you can leave confessions off. Um, you know, first of all, it's it's the prototype for the whole genre of autobiography. Uh, it was some case, some senses the first, but also, and this this is a real testament to its greatness. It was the first autobiography and probably the best. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I can't think of any autobiography of anybody that's this is this is as as sublime and as profound and as honest. Uh, and and as as much and and so, so theologically rich and brilliant as as uh, Augustine's Confession, so you know it's certainly it's certainly one of the one of the great works. So when you ask me, you know, I don't know if you can't remember now, uh, Your Excellency, if you ask me what, what was my favourite, what was the best, was this a this a different question, of course. Yes, uh, of course there is. Yes, there is. Yes. <laughs> favourite is subjective, and I was answering you in a subjective way. You know, if you ask me to answer objectively, it would be difficult to choose otherwise than confessions. Wow. Now, I must confess, one of the 12 books I have not read, The Man Who Was Thursday, I must confess, I've not 
so what is it and why did it make the list <laughs> well uh, it, it's, it's a very strange book and most people who read it for the first time i would even venture to 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 suggest that everybody who reads it for the first time is confused when they finish it <laughs> oh really <laughs> <laughs> it's very surreal so in in a nutshell i could try to explain it basically what 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 um what chesterton is chesterton's uh best novel uh and probably his best known novel and basically what he's showing us is is a quest for for god but these are people that are in denial these are anarchists who 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 dislike god but the whole idea is if you're authentically seeking the truth um then you the, the truth will be presented to you and and the key thing about it at the end is it's a it's a it's a it's a, a meditation on the mystery of suffering and so the the the, the uh the tendency some some of us have to say well because they're suffering therefore there's not a loving god mm-hmm. and uh, I, again i don't want to give away the end of the novel but what what's revealed at the end of the novel is on the contrary uh, we have a god not only um uh that that, that uh, makes sense of the cosmos in terms of reason but actually enters the cosmos and suffers with us and for us it's almost as if what what the novel is saying is that a distant unsuffering god would be insufferable but we don't have a distant unsuffering god we have a god who suffers with us and for us and that makes all the difference in the world right 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 of course the mystery of the incarnation is it's literally there before us so 12 made that book so were there books that you struggled with and said well maybe i should put this one in as one of the 12 and so in other words who were there a couple that were left behind that if it was a book of 14, you would have included them? Like, are there any others out there? Well, you know, the, the, the thing the thing is that uh, I, I, it could have been 50. It could have been 100. That's what I was uh, thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there, there's, there's an element. I, I don't, I think I would, the, the subtitle of the book is is 12, is, is um, well, there's 12 great books uh, and getting no classic literature. It's not the 12 great books, right? So uh, it's not a suggestion that these are the best 12. Uh, these are 12 great books that are, that that deserve to be in any list of great books. Um, but, you know, I could easily have selected a different 12, and those those other 12 would be as good as works of literature and as conveyors of goodness, truth, and beauty mm-hmm. as the 12 I did select. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's excellent. That's excellent. So we have now in our diocese a number of schools that have a classical education, right? And they read the great books as a, as a major pillar of their education. And I see you shaking your head, which people will not will not see, but I can see you as we're taping that you're, you're in agreement. Uh, so you would be an advocate of like a more classical form of education for our youngsters? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, one of the most encouraging things I've seen in, in recent years is the explosion of, of classical education uh, across the spectrum, both in Catholic schools uh, and in Protestant schools. Uh, and indeed, it, we have these charter schools now that are mm-hmm. that are not mm-hmm. denominational at all. But this classical education, classical model is really taking off. And it needs to, because what it really is is a restoration of, uh, of the canon of Western civilization, uh, which has been neglected and lost over the last 50 or so years. Now, we talk about the, the, the canonized saints, uh, those those saints that are in the canon of, of of those we know in heaven, but they're also canonized books. Right? There's there's a literary canon, and and these books are in that canon because they're tried and tested. You know that like a good wine, 
right? A, a great book speaks across the centuries and the generations. Uh, as, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, uh, fashions are all, always coming and going, but mostly going. All right. If, if something is up to date, it's going to be out of date. If something is you know, is following the zeitgeist and not the Heidegger geist or the spirit of the age and not the Holy Spirit, it's going to be out of date. These works are never these works are never out of date because they are actually tapping into perennial, permanent things. And, and in a classical education, then the books would be read, and then are they discussed? Are themes taken out of them? Are you aware? Like, would you have a sense of how this works for the classical education? Well, there were there were there were different approaches. Obviously, the the the, the Socratic method is you 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 engage the students by getting them to engage themselves. In other words, you 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 have a discussion uh, amongst the students about mm-hmm. the work, and you try to bring their own thoughts out uh, mm-hmm. into a forum. Um, but there are various modes of, of, of these are means to the end. The the end ultimately is we want uh, children to grow up with uh, three thousand years of experience. Right. Um, you know, and we don't want them to grow up so they know nothing about the, the rich heritage of the civilization of which they are part. Because if you if you if you don't root people, and this is what this, this is what basically Chesterton talks about the philosophy of the tree and the philosophy of the cloud. That basically, if we're not rooted in the perennial truths that we see in these mm-hmm. great works or these great books, then we're like tumbleweeds, like clouds that are just blown away right. by whatever the right. fads and fashions of the age mm-hmm. are, with no way of testing it against anything which is which is older right. and, mm-hmm. and, and tried and tested mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now the question the, the next question may be uh, I, i'm certainly ignorant of the answer so you could say anything and i believe you <laughs> but for those authors who are alive now are there individuals that you admire that are alive writing as we speak books and stuff that people who are listening say well you know what i'm interested in and of course i've read some of these but a contemporary author that i think is worth reading is there anyone out there that you would know of and recommend or right so there's two things i would say first of all that i i do think that that um as regards uh something being canonized in terms of being a work of literature it does need to have aged like yep. a good wine so uh you know generally speaking i say that we shouldn't talk about a, a book being in the canon to at least 50 years after after it's published uh, and probably slightly longer than that so the lord of the rings for instance was now published six, seven six sixty five years ago i would have called that a great book 20 years ago because it was obviously so but generally speaking we have to be careful um uh, about canonizing work too soon because it has to has to prove the test of time but on saying that i downstairs i have a library all over the house uh so Various types of books in different parts of the house, but downstairs I have about three shelves, um, probably about two or three hundred books of what of contemporary Catholic uh, and, and and good fiction. From the, in other words, from the last twenty five years or so, mm-hmm. um, and I try to and I'm trying to make a point of reading these to keep up abreast of what's going on. So I'm going to give you some names: Michael D. O'Brien. Um, published by Ignatius Press, Father Elijah is probably his best-known book. He's mm-hmm. a great writer. Uh, there, um, uh, Fiorella de Maria, de Maria uh, is a, 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 a British writer who's uh, her, she's written some wonderful books. Again, published by Ignatius Press. Um, a bit, bit more off the charts. Um, 
Tim Powers, uh, who's the New York Times best-selling author, a little bit weird and wacky, so I'm not getting absolute <laughs> endo- <laughs> endorsement here. But he's a very devout Catholic and a good solid staunch Catholic, and that is present in his works. He's probably best known as the inspiration for the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Um, oh, so is that somebody- right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what gives some idea of sort of the weirdness of his book. But there's always, you know, the the, 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 the virtuous characters ultimately are always uh, triumphant. Uh, uh, and evil, particularly satanic evil, demonic evil, is seen as being such. There's no moral relativism in his in his works. So, uh, you know, there's a little bit in it that I'm not necessarily, I don't want people to say, you asked me to read Tim Powers. No, I, 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 that's your choice. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. That's, that's fascinating. I, I, the only other thing I was wondering, and again, I'm, I'm completely ignorant of this too. I mean, I've read some of the, like in, in, in Eastern literature, not Western literature, at seminary, we read the Bhagavad Gita and the, just in comparative religion, all the rest of it. But is 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 any of that fascinated you in your career to delve into Eastern literature, or has it just always been like British Western literature? Yeah, I mean, I made a decision, you know, years ago that you know I know that when I die, there will be dozens of books I wanted to write I haven't written and hundreds of books i wanted to read i haven't read uh and that's within the western canon so you know I, i'm I, if people have insights they can offer me from eastern literature i'm very pleased to receive it but i want to focus you know i've only on the west of mm-hmm. western civilization I and mean, that includes you know russian russian writers like dostoevsky and solzhenitsyn so there's, there's plenty to be reading without my having to dabble in it, in, in, go, go too far east, so to speak. But I'm not saying other people shouldn't, but I, I, I know what I want to right. focus on. You know, I've only got a few years left. I'm, I'm going to keep, keep, keep looking at the finishing line here. Well, listen, from the bookshelves I see from back there, you've done a great job of reading. My goodness. <laughs> well, Joseph, thank you. Well, you're quite a, you, you, you've led a remarkable life and you're doing remarkable work. And I'm just grateful that you spent the time with me today. And our well, listeners, Your Excellency, I mean, it, it's it's a joy for me to spend time with you, and it's, it really is encouraging to me to know that we have leaders of the church such as yourself. We 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 need that inspiration at the top that we can follow. Well, thank you, thank you. That's very kind. And one day, maybe I'll, I will invite you to come to the diocese if you have some time, if you to give a, a a series of talks. Or I think the people of the diocese would welcome you with open arms, and myself too. Yeah, I would love that. It'd be good oh. to have the opportunity to meet you in the flesh. Oh, good. I'm just writing it down so I don't forget. Okay. <laughs> While you're writing that down, Excellency, I'll say uh, let's. Uh, we're going to take one more break now. We'll come back on the other side with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency has been having an excellent conversation with Joseph Pierce. And uh, we'll be right back. Hey, this is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Pitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, The Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless.
Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Oh, so, okay, Excellency, here's the, uh, the listener question that came in this week. Mm-hmm. simply asks, uh, what do the four symbols for the four evangelists signify? And is there a significance in why they were chosen to represent them? Uh, well, the second part of the question, I really do not know there was perhaps like a choice made. I think this evolved over time, but it, it's it's biblically rooted. And there are different, I did some homework to try to answer this question, and there's no unanimity as to why these symbols were chosen and what they what they mean, right? So with all that as a disclaimer, this is what I came up with. All right. So, you know, the, the symbol for Matthew, which is the first of the four Gospels, at least in the order in the Bible, is a winged man or a winged angel. And the commentators I read said that if you look at the the narrative in St. Matthew's Gospel, from the genealogy to the incarnation, it's, it is an affirmation, basically what you mentioned, Joseph, of the importance of reason in the enterprise of salvation, that humanity is important, right? So that's one. Mark is the winged lion. So you think courage, you think monarchy, and of course, in Mark, it's the kingship of Christ and the coming of the kingdom that is the clear theme. For Luke, who's my favorite, is the winged ox. I, I always have sympathy with oxes or bulls. <laughs> and what do you think of, of a bull? You think of sacrifice, you think of service, you think of perseverance and strength. And that's one of the themes in St. Luke's Gospel, right? Particularly of the Lord, the sacrifice of his life. Now, the one I, I what caught me by surprise is John. Now, John, the symbol is the eagle. Now, Christian scholars, there was a time in the church where the eagle was believed to be the only creature on earth who could look directly into the sun. And because of that, John of the four evangelists could look deep within the, the, the mystery of the incarnation. You just think of the prologue. And therefore, he is the one who's given the symbol of the eagle. Fascinating, no? Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. And Joseph Pierce, thank you so much for joining us. What a fascinating, insightful conversation that was. Mm-hmm. So now, Joseph, tell us your website. Tell, where people, If people want to come to learn more about, where would they go? So if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, just go to my personal website, which is jpierce.co. So that's J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. C-O, not C-O-M, C-O. Correct. Great. Excellent. Excellent. So then before we go, Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Certainly. We'll pray together today. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Joseph, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Steve, it's always good to see you, my friend. Awesome. Great. 
great uh, conversation. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks, Excellency. All the best. Thank you. Thank you.